Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Part 3, second section of Chapter 56 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old and New Tables Continued. 20. Oh, my brethren, am I then cruel? But I say, what falleth, that shall one also push. Everything of today, it falleth, it decayeth. Who would preserve it? But I, I wish also to push it. Know ye the delight which rolleth stones into precipitous depths? Those men of today see just how they roll into my depths. A prelude am I to better players, O oh, my brethren, an example. Do according to mine example, and him whom ye do not teach to fly, teach I pray you to fall faster. 21. I love the brave, but it is not enough to be a swordsman. One must also know whereon to use swordsmanship. And often it is greater bravery to keep quiet and pass by, that thereby one may reserve oneself for a worthier foe. Ye shall only have foes to be hated, but not foes to be despised. Ye must be proud of your foes. Thus have I already taught. For the worthier foe, O my brethren, shall ye reserve yourselves. Therefore must ye pass by many a one, especially many of the rabble, who din your ears with noise about people and peoples. Keep your eye clear of their for and against. There is there much right and much wrong. He who looketh on becometh wroth. Therein viewing, therein hewing, they are the same thing. Therefore depart into the forests and lay your sword to sleep. Go your ways, and let the people and peoples go theirs. Gloomy ways, verily, on which not a single hope glinteth any more. Let there the traitor rule where all that still glittereth is traitor's gold. It is the time of kings no longer. That which now calleth itself the people is unworthy of kings. See how these people themselves now do just like the traitors. They pick up the smallest advantage out of all kinds of rubbish. They lay lures for one another. They lure things out of one another that they call good neighborliness. Oh, blessed remote period when a people said to itself, I will be master over peoples. For my brethren, the best shall rule, the best also willeth to rule, and where the teaching is different, there the best is lacking. 
22. If they had bread for nothing, alas, for what would they cry? Their maintainment, that is their true entertainment, and they shall have it hard. Beasts of prey are they, in their working. There is even plundering, in their earning. There is even overreaching. Therefore shall they have it hard. Better beasts of prey shall they thus become, subtler, cleverer, more man-like. For man is the best beast of prey. All the animals hath man already robbed of their virtues. That is why of all animals it hath been hardest for man. Only the birds are still beyond him. And if man should yet learn to fly, alas, to what height would his rapacity fly? 23. Thus would I have man and woman, fit for war the one, fit for maternity the other, both, however, fit for dancing with head and legs and lost be the day to us in which a measure hath not been danced, and false be every truth which hath not had laughter along with it. 24. Your marriage arranging, see that it be not a bad arranging. Ye have arranged too hastily, so there followeth therefrom marriage breaking, and better marriage breaking than marriage bending, marriage lying. Thus spake a woman unto me. Indeed, I broke the marriage, but first did the marriage break me. The badly paired found I ever the most revengeful. They make every one suffer for it that they no longer run singly. On that account want I the honest ones to say to one another, we love each other. Let us see to it that we maintain our love. Or shall our pledging be blundering? Give us a set term and a small marriage, that we may see if we are fit for the great marriage. It is a great matter always to be twain. Thus do I counsel all honest ones, and what would be my love to the superman and to all that is to come, if I should counsel and speak otherwise. Not only to propagate yourselves onwards, but upwards. Thereto, O oh my brethren, may the garden of marriage help you. 25. He who hath grown wise concerning old origins, lo, he will at last seek after the fountains of the future and new origins. O oh my brethren, not long will it be until new peoples shall arise and new fountains shall rush down into new depths. For the earthquake, it choketh up many wells, it causeth much languishing, but it bringeth also to light inner powers and secrets. The earthquake discloseth new fountains. In the earthquake of old peoples, new fountains burst forth. And whoever calleth out, Lo, here is a well for many thirsty ones, one heart for many longing ones, one will for many instruments. 
around him collecteth a people, that is to say, many attempting ones. Who can command, who must obey, that is there attempted. Ah, with what long seeking and solving and failing and learning and reattempting, human society, it is an attempt, so I teach, a long seeking. It seeketh, however, the ruler. An attempt, my brethren, and no contract. Destroy, I pray you, destroy that word of the soft-hearted and half-and-half. And half. 26. O oh, my brethren, with whom lieth the greatest danger to the whole human future? Is it not with the good and just? As those who say and feel in their hearts, We already know what is good and just. We possess it also. Woe to those who still seek thereafter. And whatever harm the wicked may do, the harm of the good is the harmfulest harm. And whatever harm the world maligners may do, the harm of the good is the harmfulest harm. Oh, my brethren, into the hearts of the good and just looked someone once on a time who said, They are the Pharisees. But people did not understand him. The good and just themselves were not free to understand him. Their spirit was imprisoned in their good conscience. The stupidity of the good is unfathomably wise. It is the truth, however, that the good must be Pharisees. They have no choice. The good must crucify him who deviseth his own virtue. That is the truth. The second one, however, who discovered their country, the country, heart, and soil of the good and just, it was he who asked, Whom do they hate the most? The Creator hate they most, him who breaketh the tables and old values, the breaker, him they call the law-breaker. For the good they cannot create. They are always the beginning of the end. They crucify him who writeth new values on new tables. They sacrifice unto themselves the future. They crucify the whole human future. The good. They have always been the beginning of the end. 27. O oh, my brethren, have ye also understood this word? And what I once said of the last man? With whom lieth the greatest danger to the whole human future? Is it not with the good and just? Break up. Break up, I pray you, the good and just. Oh, my brethren, have ye understood also this word? 28. Ye flee from me, ye are frightened, ye tremble at this word. Oh, my brethren, when I enjoined you to break up the good and the tables of the good, 
then only did I embark man on his high seas. And now only cometh unto him the great terror, the great outlook, the great sickness, the great nausea, the great sea-sickness. False shores and false securities did the good teach you. In the lies of the good were ye born and bred. Everything hath been radically contorted and distorted by the good. But he who discovered the country of man discovered also the country of man's future. Now shall ye be sailors for me, brave, patient. Keep yourselves up betimes, my brethren. Learn to keep yourselves up. The sea stormeth. Many seek to raise themselves again by you. The sea stormeth, all is in the sea. Well, cheer up, ye old seamen hearts. What a fatherland! Tither striveth our helm where our children's land is. Titherwards, stormier than the sea, stormeth our great longing. 29 why so hard said the diamond one day the charcoal are we then not near relatives why so soft oh my brethren thus do i ask you are ye then not my brethren why so soft so submissive and yielding why is there so much negation and abnegation in your hearts why is there so little fate in your looks? And if ye will not be fates and inexorable ones, how can ye one day conquer with me? And if your hardness will not glance and cut and chip to pieces, how can ye one day create with me? For the creators are hard, and blessedness must it seem to you to press your hand upon millenniums, as upon wax. Blessedness to write upon the will of millenniums as upon brass. Harder than brass, nobler than brass, entirely hard is only the noblest. This new table, O oh my brethren, put I up over you. Become hard. 30. O oh thou, my will thou change of every need my needfulness preserve me from all small victories thou fatedness of my soul which i call fate thou in me over me preserve and spare me for one great fate and thy last greatness my will spare it for thy last that thou mayest be inexorable in thy victory. Ah, who hath not succumbed to his victory? Ah, whose eye hath not bedimmed in this intoxicated twilight? Ah, whose foot hath not faltered and forgotten in victory how to stand? That I may one day be ready and ripe in the great noontide, ready and ripe, like the glowing ore, the lightning-bearing cloud, and the swelling milk udder, 
ready for myself and for my most hidden will a bow eager for its arrow an arrow eager for its star a star ready and ripe in its noontide glowing pierced blessed by annihilating sun arrows a sun itself and an inexorable sun will ready for annihilation in victory o will thou change of every need my needfulness spare me for one great victory thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici paragraph twenty Quote, all that increases power is good all that springs from weakness is bad the weak and ill-constituted shall perish first principle of our charity and one shall also help them thereto nietzsche partly divined the kind of reception moral values of this stamp would meet with at the hands of the effeminate manhood of europe here we see that he had anticipated the most likely form their criticism would take see also the last two verses of paragraph seventeen paragraph twenty one the first ten verses here are reminiscent of war and warriors and of the flies in the marketplace verses eleven and twelve however are particularly important there is a strong argument in favor of the sharp differentiation of castes and of races and even of sexes see note on chapter eighteen running all through nietzsche's writings but sharp differentiation also implies antagonism in some form or other hence nietzsche's fears for modern man what modern men desire above all is peace and the cessation of pain but neither great races nor great castes have ever been built up in this way who still wanteth to rule zarathustra asks in the prologue who still wanteth to obey both are too burdensome this is rapidly becoming everybody's attitude today. the tame moral reading of the face of nature together with such democratic interpretations of life as those suggested by herbert spencer are signs of a physiological condition which is the reverse of that bounding and irresponsible healthiness in which harder and more tragic values rule paragraph twenty four this should be read in conjunction with child and marriage in the fifth verse we shall recognize our old friend marriage on the ten-year system which george meredith suggested some years ago this however must not be taken too literally i do not think nietzsche's profoundest views on marriage were ever intended to be given over to the public at all at least not for the present they appear in the biography by his sister and although their wisdom is unquestionable the nature of the reforms he suggests render it impossible for them to become popular just now paragraphs twenty six and twenty seven see note on the prologue paragraph twenty eight nietzsche was not an iconoclast from predilection no bitterness or empty hate dictated his vituperations against existing values 
and against the dogmas of his parents and forefathers. He knew too well what these things meant to the millions who professed them, to approach the task of uprooting them with levity or even with haste. He saw what modern anarchists and revolutionists do not see, namely, that man is in danger of actual destruction when his customs and values are broken. I need hardly point out, therefore, how deeply he was conscious of the responsibility he threw upon our shoulders when he invited us to reconsider our position. The lines in this paragraph are evidence enough of his earnestness. End of Part 3, Chapter 56 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part three, chapter fifty seven of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Convalescent One One morning, not long after his return to his cave, Zarathustra sprang up from his couch like a madman, crying with a frightful voice and acting as if someone still lay on the couch who did not wish to rise. Zarathustra's voice also resounded in such a manner that his animals came to him frightened, and out of all the neighboring caves and lurking places all the creatures slipped away, flying, fluttering, creeping or leaping, according to their variety of foot or wing. Zarathustra, however, spake these words, "'Up, abysmal thought out of my depth! I am thy cock and morning dawn!' thou overslept reptile up up my voice shall soon crow thee awake unbind the fetters of thine ears listen for i wish to hear thee up up there is thunder enough to make the very graves listen and rub the sleep and all the dimness and blindness out of thine eyes hear me also with thine eyes my voice is a medicine even for those born blind and once thou art awake then shalt thou ever remain awake it is not my custom to awake great-grandmothers out of their sleep that i may bid them sleep on thou stirrest stretchest thyself wheezest up up not wheeze shalt thou but speak unto me zarathustra calleth thee zarathustra the godless i zarathustra the advocate of living, the advocate of suffering, the advocate of the circuit, thee do I call my most abysmal thought. Joy to me, thou comest. I hear thee. Mine abyss speaketh. My lowest depth have I turned over into the light. Joy to me. Come hither. Give me thy hand. Ha! Let be. <laughs> disgust 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 alas to me two hardly however had zarathustra spoken these words when he fell down as one dead and remained long as one dead when however he again came to himself then was he pale and trembling and remained lying and for long he would neither eat nor drink this condition continued for seven days. His animals, however, did not leave him day or night, 
except that the eagle flew forth to fetch food. In what it fetched and foraged, it laid on Zarathustra's couch, so that Zarathustra at last lay among yellow and red berries, grapes, rosy apples, sweet-smelling herbage, and pine-cones. At his feet, however, two lambs were stretched, which the eagle had with difficulty carried off from their shepherds. At last, after seven days, Zarathustra raised himself upon his couch, took a rosy apple in his hand, smelt it, and found it smell pleasant. Then did his animals think the time had come to speak unto him. "'O oh, Zarathustra,' said they, "'now hast thou lain thus for seven days with heavy eyes. Wilt thou not set thyself again upon thy feet? Step out of thy cave. The world waiteth for thee as a garden. The wind playeth with heavy fragrance which seeketh for thee.' and all brooks would like to run after thee all things long for thee since thou hast remained alone for seven days step forth out of thy cave all things want to be thy physicians did perhaps a new knowledge come to thee a bitter grievous knowledge like leavened dough layest thou thy soul arose and swelled beyond all its bounds oh mine animals answered Zarathustra. Talk on thus, and let me listen. It refresheth me so to hear your talk. Where there is talk, there is the world as a garden unto me. How charming it is that there are words and tones! Are not words and tones rainbows and seeming bridges twixt the eternally separated? To each soul belongeth another world. To each soul is every other soul a back-world. Among the most alike doth semblance deceive most delightfully. For the smallest gap is most difficult to bridge over. For me, how could there be an outside of me? There is no outside. But this we forget on hearing tones. How delightful it is that we forget. Have not names and tones been given unto things that man may refresh himself with them? It is a beautiful folly, speaking. Therewith danceth man over everything. How lovely is all speech, and all falsehoods of tones. With tones danceth our love on variegated rainbows. O oh, Zarathustra, said then his animals, to those who think like us, things all dance themselves. They come and hold out the hand, and laugh, and flee, and return. Everything goeth, everything returneth, eternally rolleth the wheel of existence. Everything dieth, everything blossometh forth again, eternally runneth on the year of existence. Everything breaketh. Everything is integrated anew, eternally buildeth itself the same house of existence. All things separate, all things again greet one another. Eternally true to itself remaineth the ring of existence. Every moment beginneth existence, around every here rolleth the ball there. The middle is everywhere." 
crooked is the path of eternity. Oh, ye wags and barrel organs, answered Zarathustra and smiled once more. How well do ye know what had to be fulfilled in seven days, and how that monster crept into my throat and choked me. But I bit off its head and spat it away from me. And ye, ye have made a liar lay out of it. Now, however, do I lie here, still exhausted with that biting and spitting away, still sick with mine own salvation, and ye looked on at it all? Oh, mine animals, are ye also cruel? Did ye like to look at my great pain as men do? For man is the cruelest animal. At tragedies, bullfights, and crucifixions, hath he hitherto been happiest on earth. And when he invented his hell, behold, that was his heaven on earth. When the great man crieth, immediately runneth the little man thither, and his tongue hangeth out of his mouth for very lusting. He, however, calleth it his pity. The little man, especially the poet, how passionately doth he accuse life in words. Hearken to him, but do not fail to hear the delight which is in all accusation. Such accusers of life, them life overcometh with a glance of the eye. Thou lovest me, saith the insolent one. Wait a little, as yet I have no time for thee. Toward himself man is the cruelest animal, and in all who call themselves sinners and bearers of the cross and penitents, do not overlook the voluptuousness in their plaints and accusations. And I myself, do I thereby want to be man's accuser? Ah, mine animals, this only I have learned hitherto, that for man his baddest is necessary for his best, that all that is baddest is the best power, and the hardest stone for the highest creator, and that man must become better and badder. Not to this torture stake was I tied, that I know man is bad, but I cried as no one hath yet cried, ah! that his baddest is so very small. Ah, oh, that his best is so very small. The great disgust at man, it strangled me and had crept into my throat, and what the soothsayer had presaged, all is alike. Nothing is worth while. Knowledge strangleth. A long twilight limped on before me, a fatally weary, fatally intoxicated sadness, which spake with yawning mouth. Eternally he returneth, the man of whom thou art weary, the small man. So yawned my sadness, and dragged its foot, and could not go to sleep. A cavern became the human earth to me, its breast caved in. Everything living became to me human dust and bones and mouldering past. My sighing sat on all human graves and could no longer arise. 
my sighing and questioning croaked and choked and gnawed and nagged day and night ah man returneth eternally the small man returneth eternally naked had i once seen both of them the greatest man and the smallest man all too like one another all too human even the greatest man all too small even the greatest man that was my disgust at man and the eternal return also of the smallest man that was my disgust at all existence ah disgust 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 thus spake zarathustra and sighed and shuddered for he remembered his sickness then did his animals prevent him from speaking further do not speak further thou convalescent so answered his animals but go out where the world waiteth for thee like a garden go out unto the roses the bees and the flocks of doves especially however unto the singing birds to learn singing from them for singing is for the convalescent the sound ones may talk and when the sound also wants songs then want they other songs than the convalescent oh ye wags and barrel organs do be silent answered zarathustra and smiled at his animals how well ye know what consolation i devised for myself in seven days that i have to sing once more that consolation did i devise for myself and this convalescence would ye also make another lyre lay thereof do not talk further answered his animals once more rather thou convalescent prepare for thyself first a lyre a new lyre for behold o zarathustra for thy new lays there are needed new lyres sing and bubble over o zarathustra heal thy soul with new lays that thou mayest bear thy great fate which hath not yet been any one's fate for thine animals know it well o zarathustra who thou art and must become behold thou art the teacher of the eternal return that is now thy fate that thou must be the first to teach this teaching how could this great fate not be thy greatest danger and infirmity behold we know what thou teachest that all things eternally return and ourselves with them and that we have already existed times without number and all things with us thou teachest that there is a great year of becoming a prodigy of a great year it must like a sand-glass ever turn up anew that it may anew run down and run out so that all those years are like one another in the greatest and also in the smallest so that we ourselves in every great year are like ourselves in the greatest and also in the smallest and if thou wouldst now die o zarathustra behold we know also how thou wouldst then speak to thyself but thine animals beseech thee not to die yet thou wouldst speak and without trembling buoyant rather with bliss for a great weight 
and worry would be taken from thee, thou patientest one. Now do I die and disappear, wouldst thou say? And in a moment I am nothing. Souls are as mortal as bodies, but the plexus of causes returneth in which I am intertwined. It will again create me. I myself pertain to the causes of the eternal return. I come again with this sun, with this earth, with this eagle, with this serpent, not to a new life, or a better life, or a similar life. I come again eternally to this identical and self-same life, in its greatest and its smallest, to teach again the eternal return of all things, to speak again the word of the great noontide of earth and man, to announce again to man the superman. I have spoken my word. I break down by my word. So willeth mine eternal fate. As announcer do I succumb. The hour hath now come for the downgoer to bless himself. Thus endeth Zarathustra's downgoing. When the animals had spoken these words, they were silent and waited, so that Zarathustra might say something to them. But Zarathustra did not hear that they were silent. On the contrary, he lay quietly with closed eyes like a person sleeping, although he did not sleep, for he communed just then with his soul. The serpent, however, and the eagle, when they found him silent in such wise, respected the great stillness around him, and prudently retired. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici We meet several puzzles here. Zarathustra calls himself the advocate of the circle, the eternal recurrence of all things, and he calls this doctrine his abysmal thought. In the last verse of the first paragraph, however, after hailing his deepest thought, he cries, Disgust, disgust, disgust. We know Nietzsche's ideal man was that, quote, world-approving, exuberant, and vivacious creature, who has not only learnt to compromise and arrange with that which was and is, but wishes to have it again, as it was and is, for all eternity, insatiably calling out to Capo, or not only to himself, but to the whole piece and play. End quote. See note on chapter 42. But if one asks oneself what the condition to such an attitude are, one will realize immediately how utterly different Nietzsche was from his ideal. The man who insatiably cries the capo to himself and to the whole of his mise en scène must be in a position to desire every incident in his life to be repeated not once, but again and again eternally. Now, Nietzsche's life had been too full of disappointments, illness, unsuccessful struggles and snubs to allow of his thinking of the eternal recurrence without loathing, hence probably the words of the last verse. In verses 15 and 16 we have Nietzsche declaring himself an evolutionist in the broadest sense, that is to say that he believes in the development hypothesis as the description of the process by which species have originated. Now, to understand his position correctly, we must show his relationship to the two greatest of modern evolutionists, Darwin and Spencer. As a philosopher, however, 
Nietzsche does not stand or fall by his objections to the Darwinian or Spencerian cosmogony. He never laid claim to a very profound knowledge of biology, and his criticism is far more valuable as the attitude of a fresh mind than as that of a specialist toward the question. Moreover, in his objections many difficulties are raised which are not settled by an appeal to either of the men above mentioned. We have given Nietzsche's definition of life in the note on chapter 56, paragraph 10. Still, there remains a hope that Darwin and Nietzsche may some day become reconciled by a new description of the processes by which varieties occur. The appearance of varieties among animals and of, quote, sporting plants, end quote, in the vegetable kingdom, is still shrouded in mystery and the question whether this is not precisely the ground on which Darwin and Nietzsche will meet is an interesting one. The former says in his Origin of Species concerning the causes of variability, quote, There are two factors, namely the nature of the organism and the nature of the conditions. The former seems to be much the more important. Italics are mine. For nearly similar variations sometimes arise under as far as we can judge, dissimilar conditions, and on the other hand, dissimilar variations arise under conditions which appear to be nearly uniform. Nietzsche, recognizing the same truth, would ascribe practically all of the importance to the quote, highest functionaries in the organism, in which the life will appears as an active and formative principle. End quote and except in certain cases where passive organisms alone are concerned, would not give such a prominent place to the influence of environment. Adaptation, according to him, is merely a secondary activity, a mere reactivity, and he is therefore quite opposed to Spencer's definition, quote, Life is the continuous adjustment of internal relations to external relations, end quote. Again, in the motive force behind animal and plant life, Nietzsche disagrees with Darwin. He transforms the struggle for existence, the passive and involuntary condition, into the struggle for power, which is active and creative, and much more in harmony with Darwin's own view given above concerning the importance of the organism itself. The change is one of such far-reaching importance that we cannot dispose of it in a breath, as a mere play upon words. Quote, Much is reckoned higher than life itself by the living one. End quote. Nietzsche says that to speak of the activity of life as a struggle for existence is to state the case inadequately. He warns us not to confound Malthus with nature. There is something more than this struggle between the organic beings on this earth. Want, which is supposed to bring this struggle about, is not so common as is supposed. Some other force must be operative. The will to power is this force. Quote, the instinct of self-preservation is only one of the indirect and most frequent results thereof. End quote. A certain lack of acumen in psychological questions and the condition of affairs in England at the time Darwin wrote may both, according to Nietzsche, have induced the renowned naturalist to describe the forces of nature as he did in his Origin of Species. 
in verses twenty-eight twenty-nine and thirty of the second portion of this discourse we meet with a doctrine which at first sight seems to be merely le manoir à l'envers indeed one english critic has actually said of nietzsche that thus spake zarathustra is no more than a compendium of modern views and maxims turned upside down examining these heterodox pronouncements a little more closely however we may possibly perceive their truth regarding good and evil as purely relative values it stands to reason that what may be bad or evil in a given man relative to a certain environment may actually be good if not highly virtuous in him relative to a certain other environment if this hypothetical man represent the ascending line of life that is to say if he promise all that which is highest in a greco-roman sense then it is likely that he will be condemned as wicked if introduced into the society of men representing the opposite and descending line of life by depriving a man of his wickedness more particularly nowadays therefore one may unwittingly be doing violence to the greatest in him it may be an outrage against his wholeness just as the lopping off of a leg would be fortunately the natural so-called wickedness of higher men has in a certain measure been able to resist this lopping process which successive slave moralities have practiced but signs are not wanting which show that the noblest wickedness is fast vanishing from society the wickedness of courage and determination and that nietzsche has good reasons for crying quote, ah that man's baddest is so very small ah that his best is so very small what is good to be brave is good it is the good war which halloweth every cause End quote. see also paragraph five higher man End of part three chapter fifty seven recording by john van stan savannah georgia part three chapter fifty eight of thus spake zarathustra by friedrich nietzsche translated by thomas common this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE GREAT LONGING O oh, my soul, I have taught thee to say to-day as once on a time and formerly, and to dance thy measure over every here and there and yonder. O oh, my soul, I delivered thee from all by-places, I brush down from thee dust and spiders and twilight. O oh, my soul, I wash the petty shame and the by-place virtue from thee, and persuaded thee to stand naked before the eyes of the sun. With the storm that is called spirit did I blow over thy surging sea. All clouds did I blow away from it. I strangled even the strangler called sin. O oh, my soul, I gave thee the right to say nay like the storm, and to say yea as the open heaven saith yea, calm as the light remainest thou, and now walkest through denying storms. O oh, my soul, I restored to thee liberty over the created and the uncreated, 
and who knoweth as thou knowest the voluptuousness of the future o my soul i taught thee the contempt which doth not come like worm-eating the great the loving contempt which loveth most where it contemneth most o my soul i taught thee so to persuade that thou persuadest even the grounds themselves to thee like the sun which persuadeth even the sea to its height o my soul i have taken from thee all obeying and knee-bending and homage-paying i have myself given thee the names change of need and fate o my soul i have given thee new names and gay-coloured playthings i have called thee fate and the circuit of circuits and the navel string of time and the azure bell o my soul to thy domain gave i all wisdom to drink all new wines and also all immemorially old strong wines of wisdom o my soul every sun shed i upon thee and every night and every silence and every longing then grewest thou up for me as a vine o my soul exuberant and heavy dost thou now stand forth a vine with swelling udders and full clusters of brown golden grapes filled and weighted by thy happiness waiting from superabundance and yet ashamed of thy waiting o my soul there is nowhere a soul which could be more loving and more comprehensive and more extensive where could future and past be closer together than with thee o my soul i have given thee everything and all my hands have become empty by thee and now now sayest thou to me smiling and full of melancholy which of us oweth thanks doth the giver not owe thanks because the receiver received is bestowing not a necessity is receiving not pitying oh my soul i understand the smiling of thy melancholy thine overabundance itself now stretcheth out longing hands thy fullness looketh forth over raging seas and seeketh and waiteth the longing of overfulness looketh forth from the smiling heaven of thine eyes and verily o oh my soul who could see thy smiling and not melt into tears the angels themselves melt into tears through the over-graciousness of thy smiling. Thy graciousness and over-graciousness is it which will not complain and weep. And yet, O oh my soul, longeth thy smiling for tears and thy trembling mouth for sobs. Is not all weeping complaining and all complaining accusing? thus speakest thou to thyself and therefore o oh my soul wilt thou rather smile than pour forth thy grief than in gushing tears pour forth all thy grief concerning thy fullness and concerning the craving of the vine for the vintager and vintage knife 
but wilt thou not weep? Wilt thou not weep forth thy purple melancholy? Then wilt thou have to sing, O my soul. Behold, I smile myself, who foretell thee this. Thou wilt have to sing with passionate song, until all seas turn calm to hearken unto thy longing. Until over calm longing seas the bark glideth, the golden marvel around the gold of which all good, bad, and marvellous things frisk. Also, many large and small animals, and everything that hath light marvellous feet, so that it can run on violent blue paths. Towards the golden marvel, the spontaneous bark and its master. He, however, is the vintager who waiteth with the diamond vintage knife, thy great deliverer, O my soul, the nameless one for whom future songs only will find names. And verily, already hath thy breath the fragrance of future songs. Already glowest thou and dreamest, already drinkest thou thirstily at all deep echoing wells of consolation. Already reposeth thy melancholy in the bliss of future songs. O my soul, now have I given thee all and even my last possession, and all my hands have become empty by thee. That I bade thee sing. Behold, that was my last thing to give. That I bade thee sing. Say now, say, which of us now oweth thanks? Better still, however, Sing unto me, sing, O my soul, and let me thank thee. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of part three, chapter fifty eight. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part three, chapter fifty nine of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Second Dance Song 1. Into thine eyes gazed I lately, O life. Gold saw I gleam in thy night eyes. My heart stood still with the light. A golden bark saw I gleam on darkened waters. A sinking, drinking, re-blinking golden swing bark. At my dance frantic foot dost thou cast a glance, a laughing, questioning, melting, thrown glance. Twice only movest thou thy rattle with thy little hands. Then did my feet swing with dance fury. My heels reared aloft, my toes they hearkened. Thee they would know, hath not the dancer his ear in his toe? Unto thee did I spring, then fletst thou back from my bound, and toward me waved thy fleeing, flying tresses round. Away from thee did I spring, and from thy snaky tresses, then stoodst thou there half-turned, and in thine eye caresses. With crooked glances dost thou teach me crooked courses, 
on crooked courses learn my feet crafty fancies i fear thee near i love thee far thy flight allureth me thy seeking secureth me i suffer but for thee what would i not gladly bear for thee whose coldness inflameth whose hatred misleadeth whose flight enchaineth whose mockery pleadeth who would not hate thee thou great bindress in windress temptress secress findress who would not love thee thou innocent impatient wind-swift child-eyed sinner whither pullest thou me now thou paragon and tomboy and now foolest thou me fleeing thou sweet romp dost annoy i dance after thee i follow even faint traces lonely where art thou give me thy hand or thy finger only here are caves and thickets we shall go astray halt stand still seest thou not owls and bats in fluttering fray thou bat thou owl thou wouldst play me foul where are we from the dogs hast thou learned thus to bark and howl thou gnashest on me sweetly with little white teeth thine evil eyes shoot out upon me thy curly little mane from underneath this is a dance over stock and stone i am the hunter wilt thou be my hound or my chamois anon now beside me and quickly wickedly springing now up and over alas i have fallen myself over swinging oh see me lying thou arrogant one and imploring grace gladly would i walk with thee in some lovelier place in the paths of love through bushes variegated quiet trim or there along the lake where golden fishes dance and swim thou art now aweary there above are sheep and sunset stripes is it not sweet to sleep the shepherd pipes thou art so very weary i carry thee thither let just thine arms sink and art thou thirsty i should have something but thy mouth would not like it to drink oh that cursed nimble supple serpent and lurking witch where art thou gone but in my face do i feel through thy hand two spots and red blotches itch i am verily weary of it ever thy sheepish shepherd to be thou witch if i have hitherto sung unto thee now shalt thou cry unto me to the rhythm of my whip shalt thou dance and cry i forget not my whip not i two then did life answer me thus and kept thereby her fine ears closed o zarathustra crack not so terribly with thy whip thou knowest surely that noise killeth thought and just now there came to me such delicate thoughts we are both of us genuine ne'er-do-wells and ne'er-do-ills 
beyond good and evil found we our island and our green meadow we two alone therefore must we be friendly to each other and even should we not love each other from the bottom of our hearts must we then have a grudge against each other if we do not love each other perfectly and that i am friendly to thee and often too friendly that knowest thou and the reason is that i am envious of thy wisdom ah this mad old fool wisdom if thy wisdom should one day run away from thee ah then would also my love run away from thee quickly thereupon did life look thoughtfully behind and around and said softly o zarathustra thou art not faithful enough to me thou lovest me not nearly so much as thou sayest i know thou thinkest of soon leaving me there is an old heavy heavy booming clock it boometh by night up to thy cave when thou hearest this clock strike the hours at midnight then thinkest thou between one and twelve thereon thou thinkest thereon o zarathustra i know it of soon leaving me yea answered i hesitatingly but thou knowest it also and i said something into her ear in amongst her confused yellow foolish tresses thou knowest that o zarathustra that knoweth no one and we gazed at each other and looked at the green meadow o'er which the cool evening was just passing and we wept together then however was life dearer unto me than all my wisdom had ever been thus spake zarathustra three one o oh man take heed two what saith deep midnight's voice indeed three i slept my sleep four from deepest dream i've woken plead five the world is deep six and deeper than the day could read seven deep is its woe eight joy deeper still than grief can be nine woe saith hence go ten but joys all want eternity eleven want deep profound eternity twelve End of part three, chapter fifty nine. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part three, chapter sixty of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Seven Seals, or the Yea and Amen Lay. One if i be a diviner and fool of the divining spirit which wandereth on high mountain ridges twixt two seas wandereth twixt the past and the future as a heavy cloud hostile to sultry plains and to all that is weary and can neither die nor live ready for lightning in its dark bosom and for the redeeming flash of light charged with lightnings which say yea which laugh yea ready for divining flashes of lightning 
Blessed, however, is he who is thus charged. And verily, long must he hang like a heavy tempest on the mountain, who shall one day kindle the light of the future. Oh, how could I not be ardent for eternity, and for the marriage ring of rings, the ring of the return? Never yet have I found the woman by whom I should like to have children, unless it be this woman whom I love, for I love thee, O eternity. For I love thee, O eternity. 2. If ever my wrath hath burst graves, shifted landmarks, or rolled old shattered tables into precipitous depths, if ever my scorn hath scattered mouldered words to the winds, and if I have come like a bosom to cross-spiders, and as a cleansing wind to old charnel-houses, if ever I have sat rejoicing where old gods lie buried, world-blessing, world-loving, beside the monuments of old world-maligners, for even churches and gods' graves do I love, if only heaven looketh through their ruined roofs with pure eyes, gladly do I sit like grass and red poppies on ruined churches. Oh, how could I not be ardent for eternity, and for the marriage ring of rings, the ring of the return? Never yet have I found the woman by whom I should like to have children, unless it be this woman whom I love, for I love thee, O eternity." For I love thee, O eternity. 3. If ever a breath hath come to me of the creative breath, and of the heavenly necessity which compelleth even chances to dance star dances, if ever I have laughed with the laughter of the creative lightning, to which the long thunder of the deed followeth grumblingly, but obediently, if ever I have played dice with the gods at the divine table of the earth, so that the earth quaked and ruptured and snorted forth fire-streams, for a divine table is the earth, and trembling with new creative dictums and dice-casts of the gods. Oh, how could I not be ardent for eternity, and for the marriage ring of rings, the ring of the return. Never yet have I found the woman by whom I should like to have children, unless it be this woman whom I love. For I love thee, O eternity. For I love thee, O eternity. 4. If ever I have drunk a full draught of the foaming spice and confection bowl in which all things are well mixed, if ever my hand hath mingled the furthest with the nearest, fire with spirit, joy with sorrow, and the harshest with the kindest, if I myself am a grain of the saving salt which maketh everything in the confection bowl mix well, for there is a salt which uniteth good with evil, and even the evilest is worthy as spicing and as final overfoaming. Oh! How could I not be ardent for eternity, 
and for the marriage ring of rings, the ring of the return. Never yet have I found the woman by whom I should like to have children, unless it be this woman whom I love. For I love thee, O eternity. For I love thee, O eternity. 5. If I be fond of the sea, and all that is sea-like, and fondest of it when it angrily contradicteth me, if the exploring delight be in me, which impelleth sails to the undiscovered, if the seafarer's delight be in my delight, if ever my rejoicing hath called out, the shore hath vanished, now hath fallen from me the last chain, the boundless roareth around me, far away sparkle for me space and time. Well, cheer up, old heart. Oh, how could I not be ardent for eternity, and for the marriage ring of rings the ring of the return? Never yet have I found the woman by whom I should like to have children, unless it be this woman whom I love, for I love thee, O eternity, for I love thee, O eternity. 6. If my virtue be a dancer's virtue, and if I have often sprung with both feet into golden emerald rapture, if my wickedness be a laughing wickedness, at home among rose-banks and hedges of lilies, for in laughter is all evil present, but it is sanctified and absolved by its own bliss. And if it be my Alpha and Omega that everything heavy shall become light, every body a dancer, and every spirit a bird, and verily, that is my Alpha and Omega. Oh, how could I not be ardent for eternity, and for the marriage ring of rings, the ring of the return? Never yet have I found the woman by whom I should like to have children, unless it be this woman whom I love, for I love thee, O eternity, for I love thee, O eternity. 7. If ever I have spread out a tranquil heaven above me, and have flown into mine own heaven with mine own pinions, if I have swum playfully in profound luminous distances, and if my freedom's avian wisdom hath come to me, thus, however, speaketh avian wisdom. Lo, there is no above and no below. Throw thyself about, outward, backward, thou light one. Sing, speak no more. Are not all words made for the heavy? Do not all words lie to the light ones? Sing, speak no more. Oh! How could I not be ardent for eternity? And for the marriage ring of rings, the ring of the return? Never yet have I found the woman by whom I should like to have children, unless it be this woman whom I love. For I love thee, O eternity. For I love thee, O eternity. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici this is a final paean which Zarathustra sings to eternity, and the marriage ring of rings, the ring of the eternal recurrence.
End of Part 3, Chapter 60 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 4, Chapter 61 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Fourth and Last Part Ah, where in the world have there been greater follies than with the pitiful? And what in the world hath caused more suffering than the follies of the pitiful? Woe unto all loving ones who have not an elevation which is above their pity. Thus spake the devil unto me once on a time. Even God hath his hell. It is his love for man. And lately did I hear him say these words. God is dead. Of his pity for man hath God died. Zarathustra, Second Part, The Pitiful THE HONEY SACRIFICE And again passed moons and years over Zarathustra's soul, and he heeded it not. His hair, however, became white. One day he sat on a stone in front of his cave and gazed calmly into the distance. One there gazeth out on the sea and away beyond sinuous abysses. Then went his animals thoughtfully round about him, and at last set themselves in front of him. "'O Zarathustra,' said they, "'gazest thou out, perhaps, for thy happiness?' "'Of what account is my happiness?' answered he. "'I have long ceased to strive any more for happiness. I strive for my work.' "'O Zarathustra!' said the animals once more. That sayest thou as one who hath overmuch of good things. Liest thou not in a sky-blue lake of happiness? Ye wags, answered Zarathustra and smiled, how well did ye choose the simile. But ye know also that my happiness is heavy, and not like a fluid wave of water, it presseth me, and will not leave me, and is like molten pitch. Then went his animals again thoughtfully round him, and placed themselves once more in front of him. O oh, Zarathustra, said they, is it consequently for that reason that thou thyself always becometh yellower and darker, although thy hair looketh white and flaxen? Lo, thou sittest in thy pitch. What do you say, my animals? said Zarathustra, laughing. Verily, I reviled when I spake of pitch. As it happeneth with me, so is it with all fruits that turn ripe. It is the honey in my veins that maketh my blood thicker, and also my soul stiller. "'So will it be, O Zarathustra,' answered his animals, and pressed up to him. "'But wilt thou not to-day ascend a high mountain? "'The air is pure, and to-day one seeth more of the world than ever.' "'Yea, mine animals,' answered he, 
ye counsel admirably and according to my heart. I will to-day ascend a high mountain. But see that honey is there ready to hand, yellow, white, good, ice-cool, golden-comb honey. For know that when aloft I will make the honey sacrifice. When Zarathustra, however, was aloft on the summit, he sent his animals home that had accompanied him, and found that he was now alone. Then he laughed from the bottom of his heart, looked around him, and spake thus, That I spake of sacrifices and honey-sacrifices. It was merely a ruse in talking, and, verily, a useful folly. Here aloft can I now speak freer than in front of mountain caves and anchorites' domestic animals. What to sacrifice! I squander what is given me, a squanderer with a thousand hands. How could I call that sacrificing? And when I desired honey, I only desired bait, and sweet mucus and mucilage, for which even the mouths of growing bears and strange, sulky, evil birds water. The best bait, as huntsmen and fishermen require it. For if the world be as a gloomy forest of animals, and a pleasure ground for all wild huntsmen, it seemeth to me, rather, and preferably, a fathomless rich sea. A sea full of many-hued fishes and crabs, for which even the gods might long, and might be tempted to become fishers in it, and casters of nets. So rich is the world in wonderful things, great and small, especially the human world, the human sea. Towards it do I now throw out my golden angle-rod and say, Open up, thou human abyss! Open up, and throw unto me thy fish and shining crabs. With my best bait shall I allure to myself to-day the strangest human fish. My happiness itself do I throw out into all places far and wide, twixt Orient, Noontide, and Occident, to see if many human fish will not learn to hug and tug at my happiness. Until biting at my sharp hidden hooks. They have to come up to my height, the motliest abyss-groundlings, to the wickedest of all fishers of men. For this am I the heart, and from the beginning, drawing, hither drawing, upward drawing, upbringing, a drawer, a trainer, a training-master, who not in vain counseled himself once on a time, Become what thou art. Thus may men now come up to me, for as yet do I await the signs that it is time for my down-going. As yet do I not myself go down, as I must do, amongst men. Therefore do I wait here, crafty and scornful, upon high mountains. No impatient one, no patient one, rather one who hath even unlearnt patience, because he no longer suffereth. For my fate giveth me time. It hath forgotten me, perhaps, 
or doth it sit behind a big stone and catch flies? Then verily I am well disposed to mine eternal fate, because it doth not hound and hurry me, but leaveth me time for merriment and mischief. So that I have to-day ascended this high mountain to catch fish. Did ever any one catch fish upon high mountains? And though it be a folly what I here seek and do, it is better so than that down below I should become solemn with waiting, and green and yellow, a posturing wrath-snorter with waiting, a holy howl-storm from the mountains, an impatient one that shouteth down to the valleys, hearken! else I will scourge you with the scourge of God. Not that I would have a grudge against such wrathful ones on that account. They are well enough for laughter to me. Impatient must they now be, those big alarm drums which find a voice now or never. Myself, however, and my fate, we do not talk to the present. Neither do we talk to the never. For talking we have patience and time and more than time. For one day must it yet come and may not pass by. What must one day come and may not pass by? Our great hazar, that is to say, our great remote human kingdom, the Zarathustra kingdom of a thousand years. How remote may such remoteness be? What doth it concern me? But on that account it is none the less sure unto me. With both feet stand I secure on this ground, on an eternal ground, on hard primary rock, on this highest, hardest primary mountain ridge, unto which all winds come as unto the storm parting, asking, where? And whence? And whither? Here, laugh, laugh, my hearty, healthy wickedness. From high mountains cast down thy glittering scorn laughter. Allure for me with thy glittering the finest human fish. And whatever belongeth unto me in all seas, my in and for me in all things, fish that out for me, bring that up to me, for that do I wait, the wickedest of all fish-catchers. Out, out, my fishing-hook, in and down, thou bait of my happiness, drip thy sweetest dew, thou honey of my heart. Bite my fishing-hook into the belly of all black affliction. Look out, look out, mine eye. Oh! How many seas round about me! What dawning human futures! And above me, what rosy red stillness! What unclouded silence! Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici Part 4. In my opinion, this part is Nietzsche's open avowal that all his philosophy together with all his hopes, enthusiastic outbursts, blasphemies, prolixities, and obscurities, were merely so many gifts laid at the feet of higher men. 
he had no desire to save the world. What he wished to determine was, who is to be master of the world? This is a very different thing. He came to save higher men, to give them that freedom by which alone they can develop and reach their zenith. See note on chapter 54, end. It has been argued, and with considerable force, that no such philosophy is required by higher men. That, as a matter of fact, higher men, by virtue of their constitutions, always do stand beyond good and evil, and never allow anything to stand in the way of their complete growth. Nietzsche, however, was evidently not so confident about this. He would probably have argued that we only see the successful cases. Being a great man himself, he was well aware of the dangers threatening greatness in our age. In Beyond Good and Evil, he writes, quote, There are few pains so grievous as to have seen, divined, or experienced how an exceptional man has missed his way and deteriorated. End quote. He knew, quote, from his painfulest recollections on what wretched obstacles promising developments of the highest rank have hitherto usually gone to pieces, broken down, sunk, and become contemptible. End quote. New in Part 4, we shall find that his strongest temptation to descend to the feeling of pity for his contemporaries is the cry for help which he hears from the lips of the higher men exposed to the dreadful danger of their modern environment. Notes on the Honey Sacrifice In the fourteenth verse of this discourse, Nietzsche defines the solemn duty he imposed upon himself. Quote, Become what thou art. End quote. Surely the criticism which has been directed against this maxim must all fall to the ground when it is remembered, once and for all, that Nietzsche's teaching was never intended to be other than an esoteric one. Quote, I am a law only for mine own. Quote. He says emphatically, quote, I am not a law for all. End quote. It is of the greatest importance to humanity that its highest individuals should be allowed to attain to their full development. For, only by means of its heroes can the human race be led forward step by step to higher and yet higher levels. Quote, Become what thou art. End quote. Applied to all, of course, becomes a vicious maxim. It is to be hoped, however, that we may learn in time that the same action performed by a given number of men loses its identity precisely that same number of times. Quote, Quid licet jovi non licet bovi. End quote. At the last eight verses, many readers may be tempted to laugh. In England, we almost always laugh when a man takes himself seriously at anything save sport. And there is, of course, no reason why the reader should not be hilarious. A certain greatness is requisite, both in order to be sublime and to have reverence for the sublime. Nietzsche earnestly believed that the Zarathustra kingdom, his dynasty of a thousand years, would one day come 
if he had not believed it so earnestly, if every artist, in fact, had not believed so earnestly in his hussar, whether of ten, fifteen, a hundred, or a thousand years, we should have lost all our higher men. They would have become pessimists, suicides, or merchants. If the minor poet and philosopher has made us shy of the prophetic seriousness which characterized an Isaiah or a Jeremiah, it is surely our loss and the minor poet's gain. End of chapter 61 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 4, Chapter 62 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Cry of Distress The next day sat Zarathustra again on the stone in front of his cave, whilst his animals roved about in the world outside to bring home new food, also new honey, for Zarathustra had spent and wasted the old honey to the very last particle. When he thus sat, however, with a stick in his hand, tracing the shadow of his figure on the earth, and reflecting, verily, not upon himself and his shadow, all at once he startled and shrank back, for he saw another shadow beside his own. And when he hastily looked around and stood up, behold, there stood the soothsayer beside him, the same whom he had once given to eat and drink at his table, the proclaimer of the great weariness who taught, All is alike. Nothing is worth while. The world is without meaning. Knowledge strangleth. But his face had changed since then, and when Zarathustra looked into his eyes, his heart was startled once more. So much evil announcement and ashy grey lightnings passed over that countenance. The soothsayer, who had perceived what went on in Zarathustra's soul, wiped his face with his hand, as if he would wipe out the impression. The same did also Zarathustra. And when both of them had thus silently composed and strengthened themselves, they gave each other the hand as a token that they wanted once more to recognize each other. "'Welcome hither,' said Zarathustra. "'Thou soothsayer of the great weariness, "'not in vain shalt thou once have been my messmate and guest. "'Eat and drink also with me to-day, "'and forgive it that a cheerful old man sitteth with thee at table.' "'A cheerful old man?' answered the soothsayer, shaking his head. "'But?' Whoever thou art, or wouldst be, O Zarathustra, thou hast been here aloft the longest time. In a little while thy bark shall no longer rest on dry land. Do I then rest on dry land? asked Zarathustra, laughing. The waves around thy mountain, answered the soothsayer. Rise and rise. The waves of great distress and affliction, they will soon raise thy bark also, and carry thee away. Thereupon was Zarathustra silent, and wondered, Dost thou still hear nothing? 
continued the soothsayer doth it not rush and roar out of the depth zarathustra was silent once more and listened then heard he a long long cry which the abysses threw to one another and passed on for none of them wished to retain it so evil did it sound thou ill announcer said zarathustra at last that is a cry of distress and the cry of a man it may come perhaps out of a black sea but what doth human distress matter to me my last sin which hath been reserved for me knowest thou what it is called pity answered the soothsayer from an overflowing heart and raised both his hands aloft o oh, zarathustra i have come that i may seduce thee to thy last sin and hardly had those words been uttered when there sounded the cry once more and longer and more alarming than before also much nearer hearest thou hearest thou o zarathustra called out the soothsayer the cry concerneth thee it calleth thee come 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 it is time it is the highest time zarathustra was silent thereupon confused and staggered at last he asked like one who hesitateth in himself and who is it that there calleth me but thou knowest certainly answered the soothsayer warmly why dost thou conceal thyself it is the higher man that crieth for thee the higher man cried zarathustra horror-stricken what wanteth he what wanteth he the higher man what wanteth he here and his skin covered with perspiration the soothsayer however did not heed zarathustra's alarm but listened and listened in the downward direction when however it had been still there for a long while he looked behind and saw zarathustra standing trembling oh zarathustra he began with sorrowful voice thou dost not stand there like one whose happiness maketh him giddy thou wilt have to dance lest thou tumble down but although thou shouldst dance before me and leap all thy side leaps no one may say unto me behold here danceth the last joyous man in vain would any one come to this height who sought him here caves would he find indeed and back caves hiding places for hidden ones but not lucky mines nor treasure chambers nor gold veins of happiness happiness 
how indeed could one find happiness among such buried alive and solitary ones must i yet seek the last happiness on the happy isles and far away among forgotten seas but all is alike nothing is worth while no seeking is of service there are no longer any happy isles thus sighed the soothsayer with his last sigh however zarathustra again became serene and assured like one who hath come out of a deep chasm into the light nay nay three times nay exclaimed he with a strong voice and stroked his beard that do i know better there are still happy isles silence thereon thou sighing sorrow-sack cease to splash thereon thou rain-cloud of the forenoon do i not already stand here wet with thy misery and drenched like a dog now do i shake myself and run away from thee that i may again become dry thereat mayest thou not wonder do i seem to thee discourteous here however is my court but as regards the higher man well i shall seek him at once in those forests from thence came his cry perhaps he is there hard beset by an evil beast he is in my domain therein shall he receive no scaff and verily there are many evil beasts about me with those words zarathustra turned around to depart then said to the soothsayer o zarathustra thou art a rogue i know it well thou wouldst fain be rid of me rather wouldst thou run into the forest and lay snares for evil beasts but what good will it do thee in the evening wilt thou have me again in thine own cave will i sit patient and heavy like a block and wait for thee so be it shouted back zarathustra as he went away and what is mine in my cave belongeth also unto thee my guest shouldst thou however find honey therein well just lick it up thou growling bear and sweeten thy soul for in the evening we want both to be in good spirits in good spirits and joyful because this day hath come to an end and thou thyself shalt dance to my lays as my dancing bear thou dost not believe this thou shakest thy head well cheer up old bear but i also am a soothsayer thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici we now meet with zarathustra in extraordinary circumstances he is confronted with schopenhauer and tempted by the old soothsayer to commit the sin of pity quote, i have come that i may seduce thee to thy last sin end quote, says the soothsayer to zarathustra 
It will be remembered that in Schopenhauer's ethics, pity is elevated to the highest place among the virtues, and very consistently, too, seeing that de Weltenschauung is a pessimistic one. Schopenhauer appeals to Nietzsche's deepest and strongest sentiment, his sympathy for higher men. Quote, why dost thou conceal thyself he cries it is the higher man that calleth for thee zarathustra is almost overcome by the soothsayer's pleading as he had been once already in the past but he resists him step by step at length he can withstand him no longer and on the plea that the higher man is on his ground and therefore under his protection Zarathustra departs in search of him, leaving Schopenhauer, a higher man in Nietzsche's opinion, in the cave as a guest. End of chapter 62. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part 4, Chapter 63 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain talk with the kings one ere zarathustra had been an hour on his way in the mountains and forests he saw all at once a strange procession right on the path which he was about to descend came two kings walking bedecked with crowns and purple girdles and variegated like flamingos they drove before them a laden ass what do these kings want in my domain said Zarathustra in astonishment to his heart, and hid himself hastily behind a thicket. When, however, the kings approached to him, he said half aloud, like one speaking only to himself, Strange, strange, how doth this harmonize? Two kings do I see, and only one ass. Thereupon the two kings made a halt. They smiled and looked toward the spot whence the voice proceeded, and afterwards looked into each other's faces. "'Such things do we also think among ourselves,' said the king on the right. "'But we do not utter them.' The king on the left, however, shrugged his shoulders and answered, "'That may perhaps be a goat-herd, or an anchorite who hath lived too long among rocks and trees, for no society at all spoileth also good manners.' good manners replied angrily and bitterly the other king what then do we run out of the way of is it not good manners our good society better verily to live among anchorites and goat-herds than with our gilded false over-rouged populace though it call itself good society though it call itself nobility but their all is false and foul above all the blood, thanks to old evil diseases and worse curers. The best and dearest to me at present is still a sound peasant, coarse, artful, obstinate, and enduring. That is at present the noblest type. The peasant is at present the best. The peasant type should be master." but it is the kingdom of the populace i no longer allow anything to be imposed upon me 
the populace however that meaneth hodgepodge populace hodgepodge therein is everything mixed with everything saint and swindler gentleman and jew and every beast out of noah's ark good manners everything is false and foul with us no one knoweth any longer how to reverence it is that precisely that we run away from they are fulsome obtrusive dogs they gild palm leaves this loathing choketh me that we kings ourselves have become false draped and disguised with the old faded pomp of our ancestors show-pieces for the stupidest the craftiest and whosoever at present trafficketh for power we are not the first men and have nevertheless to stand for them of this imposture have we at last become weary and disgusted from the rabble have we gone out of the way from all those ballers and scribe blowflies from the traitor stench the ambition fidgeting the bad breath fie to live among the rabble fie to stand for the first men among the rabble oh, loathing 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 what doth it now matter about us kings thine old sickness seize thee said here the king on the left thy loathing seizeth thee my poor brother thou knowest however that some one heareth us immediately thereupon zarathustra who had opened ears and eyes to this talk rose from his hiding-place advanced toward the kings and thus began he who hearkeneth unto you he who gladly hearkeneth unto you is called zarathustra i am zarathustra who once said what doth it now matter about kings forgive me i rejoiced when ye said to each other what doth it matter about us kings here however is my domain and jurisdiction what may ye be seeking in my domain perhaps however ye have found on your way what i seek namely the higher man when the kings heard this they beat upon their breasts and said with one voice we are recognized with the sword of thine utterance severest thou the thickest darkness of our hearts thou hast discovered our distress for lo we are on our way to find the higher man the man that is higher than we although we are kings to him do we convey this ass for the highest man shall also be the highest lord on earth there is no sorer misfortune in all human destiny than when the mighty of the earth are not also the first men then everything becometh false and distorted and monstrous and when they are even the last men and more beast than man then riseth and riseth the populace in honour and at last saith even the populace virtue lo i alone am virtue 
"'What have I just heard?' answered Zarathustra. "'What wisdom in kings! I am enchanted, and verily I have already promptings to make a rhyme thereon, even if it should happen to be a rhyme not suited for everyone's ears. I unlearned long ago to have consideration for long ears. Well, then, well, now!' Here, however, it happened that the ass also found utterance. It said distinctly and with malevolence, "'Twas once, methinks ye're one of our blessed Lord, drunk without wine, the sibyl thus deplored. How ill things go! Decline, decline. Ne'er sank the world so low. Rome now hath turned harlot and harlot stew. Rome's Caesar a beast, and God hath turned a Jew. 2. With those rhymes of Zarathustra the kings were delighted. The king on the right, however, said, O oh, Zarathustra, how well it was that we set out to see thee, for thine enemies showed us thy likeness in their mirror. There lookst thou with the grimace of a devil, and sneeringly, so that we were afraid of thee. But what good did it do? Always didst thou prick us anew in heart and ear with thy sayings. Then did we say at last, What doth it matter how he look? We must hear him. Him who teacheth, ye shall love peace as a means to new wars, and the short peace more than the long. No one ever spake such warlike words. What is good? To be brave is good. It is the good war that halloweth every cause. O Zarathustra, our father's blood stirred in our veins at such words. It was like the voice of spring to old wine-casks, when the swords rang among one another like red-spotted serpents, then did our fathers become fond of life. The sun of every peace seemed to them languid and lukewarm, and the long peace, however, made them ashamed. How they sighed, our fathers, when they saw on the wall brightly furbished, dried up swords like those they thirsted for war for a sword thirsteth to drink blood and sparkleth with desire when the kings thus discoursed and talked eagerly of the happiness of their fathers there came upon zarathustra no little desire to mock at their eagerness for evidently they were very peaceable kings whom he saw before him king with old and refined features but he restrained himself well said he thither leadeth the way there lieth the cave of zarathustra and this day is to have a long evening at present however a cry of distress calleth me hastily away from you it will honour my cave if kings want to sit and wait in it but to be sure you will have to wait long. Well, what of that? Where doth one at present learn better to wait than at courts? And the whole virtue of kings that hath remained unto them 
is it not called to-day ability to wait thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici on his way zarathustra meets two more higher men of his time two kings cross his path they are above the average modern type for their instincts tell them what real ruling is and they despise the mockery which they have been taught to call reigning Quote, we are not the first men they say and have nevertheless to stand for them of this imposture have we at last become weary and disgusted End quote. it is the kings who tell zarathustra quote, there is no sorer misfortune in all human destiny than when the mighty of the earth are not also the first men there everything becometh false and distorted and monstrous End quote. the kings are also asked by zarathustra to accept the shelter of his cave whereupon he proceeds his way end of part four chapter sixty three recording by john van stan savannah georgia Part four, chapter sixty four of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Leech. And Zarathustra went thoughtfully on, further and lower down, through forests and past moory bottoms. As it happeneth, however, to every one who meditateth upon hard matters, he trod thereby unawares upon a man and lo there spurted into his face all at once a cry of pain and two curses and twenty bad invectives so that in his fright he raised his stick and also struck the trodden one immediately afterwards however he regained his composure and his heart laughed at the folly he had just committed pardon me he said to the trodden one who had got up enraged and had seated himself pardon me and hear first of all a parable as a wanderer who dreameth of remote things on a lonesome highway runneth unawares against a sleeping dog a dog which lieth in the sun as both of them then start up and snap at each other like deadly enemies those two beings mortally frightened so did it happen unto us and yet and yet how little was lacking for them to caress each other that dog and that lonesome one are they not both lonesome ones whoever thou art said the trodden one still enraged thou treadest also to nigh me with thy parable and not only with thy foot lo am i then a dog and thereupon the sitting one got up and pulled his naked arm out of the swamp for at first he had lain outstretched on the ground hidden and indiscernible like those who lie in wait for swamp game but whatever art thou about called out zarathustra in alarm for he saw a deal of blood streaming over the naked arm what hath hurt thee hath an evil beast bit thee thou unfortunate one the bleeding one laughed still angry what matter is it to thee said he 
and he was about to go on. "'Here am I at home, and in my province. Let him question me whoever will. To adult, however, I shall hardly answer.' "'Thou art mistaken,' said Zarathustra sympathetically, and held him fast. "'Thou art mistaken. Here thou art not at home, but in my domain, and therein shall no one receive any hurt.' Call me however what thou wilt. I am who I must be. I call myself Zarathustra. Well, up thither is the way to Zarathustra's cave. It is not far. Wilt thou not attend to thy wounds at my home? It hath gone badly with thee, thou unfortunate one, in this life. First a beast bit thee, and then a man trod upon thee. When, however, the trodden one had heard the name of Zarathustra, he was transformed. "'What happeneth unto me?' he exclaimed. "'Who preoccupieth me so much in this life as this one man, namely Zarathustra, and that one animal that liveth on blood, the leech? For the sake of the leech did I lie here by this swamp like a fisher?' and already had mine outstretched arm been bitten ten times when there biteth a still finer leech at my blood zarathustra himself oh happiness oh miracle praised be the stay which enticed me into the swamp praised be the best the livest cupping-glass that at present liveth praised be the great conscience leech zarathustra Thus spake the trodden one, and Zarathustra rejoiced at his words and their refined reverential style. "'Who art thou?' asked he, and gave him his hand. "'There is much to clear up and elucidate between us, but already methinketh pure clear day is dawning.' "'I am the spiritually conscientious one.' answered he who was asked, and in matters of the spirit it is difficult for any one to take it more rigorously, more restrictedly, and more severely than I, except him from whom I learnt it, Zarathustra himself. Better know nothing than half know many things. Better be a fool on one's own account than a sage on other people's approbation. I go to the basis what matter if it be great or small? If it be called swamp or sky, a handbreadth of basis is enough for me, if it be actually basis and ground. A handbreadth of basis, thereon can one stand. In the true knowing knowledge, there is nothing great and nothing small. Then thou art perhaps an expert on the leech? asked Zarathustra. And thou investigatest the leech to its ultimate basis, thou conscientious one. Oh, Zarathustra, answered the trodden one, that would be something immense. How could I presume to do so? That, however, is of which I am master and knower, is the brain of the leech. That is my world. And it is also a world, 
forgive it however that my pride here findeth expression for here i have not mine equal therefore said i here am i at home how long have i investigated this one thing the brain of the leech so that here the slippery truth might no longer slip from me here is my domain for the sake of this did i cast everything else aside for the sake of this did everything else become indifferent to me and close beside my knowledge lieth my black ignorance my spiritual conscience requireth from me that it should be so that i should know one thing and not know all else they are a loathing unto me all the semi-spiritual all the hazy hovering and visionary where mine honesty ceaseth there am i blind but want also to be blind where i want to know however there want i also to be honest namely severe rigorous restricted cruel and inexorable because thou once saidest o zarathustra spirit is life which itself cutteth into life that led and allured me to thy doctrine and verily with mine own blood have i increased mine own knowledge as the evidence indicateth broke in zarathustra for still was the blood flowing down the naked arm of the conscientious one for there had ten leeches bitten into it oh thou strange fellow how much doth this very evidence teach me namely thou thyself and not all perhaps might i pour into thy rigorous ear well then we part here but i would fain find thee again up thither is the way to my cave to-night shalt thou there be my welcome guest fain would i also make amends to thy body for zarathustra treading upon thee with his feet i think about that just now however a cry of distress calleth me hastily away from thee thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici among the higher men whom zarathustra wishes to save is also the scientific specialist the man who honestly and scrupulously pursues his investigations as darwin did in one department of knowledge quote, i love him who liveth in order to know and seeketh to know in order that the superman may hereafter live thus seeketh he his own downgoing the spiritually conscientious one he is called in this discourse zarathustra steps on him unawares and the slave of science bleeding from the violence he has done to himself by his self-imposed task speaks proudly of his little sphere of knowledge his little hand's breadth of ground on zarathustra's territory philosophy quote, where mine honesty ceaseth end quote says the true scientific specialist quote, there am i blind and want also to be blind where i want to know however there want i also to be honest namely severe rigorous restricted 
cruel and inexorable. End quote. Zarathustra, greatly respecting this man, invites him too to the cave, and then vanishes in answer to another cry for help. End of part four, chapter sixty four. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.